Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called Being Remembered. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 6, 2015, the second Sunday in Advent. This is a guest essay by Sarah Miles. Miles is the author of several books, Take This Bread, A Radical Conversion, and then Jesus Freak, Feeding, Healing, Raising the Dead, and then thirdly, her newest book, City of God. All three books are reviewed at Journey with Jesus. Sarah Miles is the Director of Ministry at St. Gregory of Nyssa Episcopal Church in San Francisco. Her essay this week is based in particular upon the two Advent readings from Baruch chapter 5 and the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. Once in a while, if you're lucky, after hearing the same phrase over and over and over, for some reason it can suddenly break into your consciousness in a new way, and everything you've understood previously just crashes and changes. For example, my mother loves to tell the story of me sitting in a high chair when I was about three years old and free associating about all the colors of my breakfast, since I just learned the names of some colors. I was saying blue, my plate is blue, green, that sock is green, orange, orange, my juice is orange. And then I stopped, totally transfixed, and said, orange, orange juice, it's orange juice. The reading this week from Baruch is like that for me. We hear part of this prophecy at my church almost every Sunday as our post-communion prayer, and it's often like orange juice. But in Advent, the season of apocalypse, of revelation, it feels worth listening to anew. Of course, any verses of scripture that features tiaras, the diadem of the eternal one's glory, should grab our attention. But with or without the sparkles, the beautiful thing about this passage is its assurance that God remembers us. God will flatten the high mountains, fill in the valleys, turn the whole world upside down. And not just to be contrary, God remembers us and will do whatever it takes, even remaking the everlasting hills, to bring us home alongside God's other children, restored to the one who made us. God longs for all people to walk in safety, to be shaded by fragrant trees, to be guided by mercy and saving justice, to arise and shine and live wrapped in the love of the one who has accompanied us through our wanderings and pain. And so Baruch says, Arise, Jerusalem, and look about. God has remembered us. And because it's Advent, I pray to also hear, in a new way, the words of the prophet Isaiah, quoted in Luke's Gospel reading. The writer of Luke had probably heard Isaiah a zillion times, but in that surprising moment of revelation, the revelation of Christ Jesus, he heard the words in a new way. Prepare a way for the Lord. 
Make his paths straight. Let every valley be filled in, every mountain and hill leveled. Winding ways straightened, and rough roads made smooth. And all people will see the salvation of God. Luke's telling of Isaiah's telling sounds new to me if I hear it not only as about John in the desert, but about Jesus' mother, who lived in a different kind of wilderness as an unmarried pregnant girl, and who makes a way for the Lord, preparing a path straight through her own human body. And Baruch's words sound new to me, too, when I hear them echoed in the prophet Mary's proclamation that the lowly and hungry, like the valleys, will be raised up and filled with good things, and the rich and proud, like the mighty mountains, will fall and be leveled. Every old, familiar story can be heard anew in Advent as we wait for Jesus, who comes to fulfill God's desire that all people, from the rising to the setting sun, may see salvation. This is not a matter of rewriting history or claiming that people who lived centuries before Jesus were speaking about him or going back in time as if we can explain better from our modern vantage point what the prophets really meant. There are endless depths of meaning in Scripture. The challenge is to remain open to surprise as we draw from the well of tradition so we can see the new thing that God is doing right now, and so we can then act upon it. The words of Luke of Isaiah and of Baruch were all written down at particular moments of history in specific places. And in every time and place they're proclaimed, whether in the 6th or 8th century before Christ in Judah, or in the 1st century around Jerusalem, or in the 21st century in any American city, these words can always reveal new understandings, new ways of seeing and acting for the people who hear them. Because the good news across the ages is that God, who accompanies us in history, in every moment of our real lives, God remembers us. Luke takes pains to point out that the word of God came to John in the time of Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate and Herod. These were the rulers of the world who thought that they, not God, were in charge. And Luke locates the revelation John received as taking place smack in the middle of that difficult political context, just as he will locate the Annunciation to Mary in Jesus' birth in other specific political contexts. And so why should we be surprised that God has not forgotten us in the time of Donald Trump, or Bashir Assad, or Microsoft, Disney, CNN, Fox, Walmart, or any other rulers who think they are in charge. The God who promised to remember his people throughout history is not blocked by the schemes of human rulers. And though the prophet mentions that God likes to strew tiaras around, given the opportunity, God also remembers her people when everything is unadorned, in the desert, in the ruins of the temple, in the saddest and most violent cities in the tackiest, lonely shopping malls, in the womb of an unprepared mother. 
And so, even if we think we've heard it a zillion times before, the Word of God has a power to break into our consciousness in surprising ways. We just have to pay attention. God calls to us through history, through all the old stories, and through the darkness of this very Advent, yearning for us and asking us to act to make a path for His coming. You can make a path for the Lord in all kinds of times and places. Try it. Try actually listening to the same old words when you repeat, Lord have mercy. And then practice mercy with your enemies, with those who wrong you and those whom you have wronged. Try walking along the same route you take every day, this time with a friend in a wheelchair or with a toddler, and see if you notice new rough places. And then practice smoothing the way for others. Try listening to the angry, ranting man on the street corner once in a while, instead of the cops who come to shoo him along. And if you notice something new about justice, act upon it. Or try looking, as I did last week, at apples. I pick buckets from my backyard, as I do every year, and there were so many left over, even after making applesauce and apple butter and apple pies, that it suddenly occurred to me, like a completely new thought, it's as if they grew on trees. It's as if God, who made the world, feeds the world for free. Maybe I should try to do that, too. So, I took bags of apples to the neighbors, and then to strangers in the park. Because seeing with new eyes, realizing how God has broken into our tired and familiar history once again, gives us once again the chance to repent. That is, to turn toward the God who remembers us and live out peace through justice like Baruch, to offer our bodies to be used to magnify the Lord like Mary, to act, as Isaiah says, so that the way will be prepared for all people, all people, to see salvation. With every action, everything we do, we are preparing a way for the Lord, the way connecting us with God's surprising truth and enduring promise, the way bringing us home. We can put stumbling blocks on the way, scatter landmines on it, or sweep the way carefully to reveal it. And always we can grab other people by the hand and say, hey, listen to this. Arise, Jerusalem, and stand on high, and look about you to the east, and behold your children gathered from the rising to the setting sun at the word of the Holy One, rejoicing that God has remembered us. A guest essay by Sarah Miles. For books this week, I review a new novel by the Irish novelist and writer Cole Tobin. The name of the book is Nora Webster, a novel, New York, Scribner, 2014. This book is 373 pages. 
Nora Webster's husband, Maurice, had been dead for three years, but she still had not removed his clothes from their closet. Everywhere she turned, she collided with memories of him, watching a movie with the kids, hearing a song, a conversation with a neighbor. Tobin writes, Every room, every sound, every piece of space was filled not only with what had been lost, but with the years themselves and the days. As you might expect, money was tight for Nora Webster. She sold the family beach house, returned to a clerical job she had quit 20 years earlier. Should she sell the car? Maybe move to Dublin? Take her son to a speech therapist for his stammer? Or perhaps that was just a temporary manifestation of teenage grief having lost his father. So, says Nora, this was what being alone is like. Such are the harsh realities of a widow with four children. Nora Webster, the protagonist of Cole Tobin's character study, is figuring out how to resume life after the death of her beloved husband. The shadow of their shared past looms over her present. It also becomes hard to admit, much less to enjoy, the growing realization that she was now free. She could do anything she wanted, like go to Spain for a much-needed rest, or splurge on a stereo in new clothes. Set in the village of Wexford, where everyone knows your business, it might not be so hard if neighbors weren't so nosy. Like when Nora got a new haircut, took voice lessons, or joined a trade union. And faith isn't much help to Nora. She says, I hope never to hear another rosary. It's overwhelming for a woman who has never had a passport, flown on a plane, been to London, or even had a phone in her modest house. It's all the stuff of personal grief set in the pettiness and provincialism of, of small-town Ireland, themes which Tobin has considered in his critically acclaimed seven previous novels. Once again, the author, Colm Tobin, the name of the book, Nora Webster, a novel. For movies this week, we go to the African country of Botswana. The name of this film is Soul of the Elephant, from 2015. Wildlife filmmakers Derek and Beverly Joubert have spent 30 years filming, researching, and exploring the animal life in Africa resulting, by the way, in 10 books, 22 films, and numerous awards. In this documentary film, they take us to the remote parts of their native Botswana, a five-day drive to the nearest town, in order to observe the lives of wild elephants, so wild and remote that it's not unusual to find sun-bleached skulls that still have their ivory tusks intact, not even the poachers are here. With brains that are five times as large as ours, their intelligence 
emotional life, family groups, social structures, and clans as large as 400 elephants, all point to remarkably sophisticated sentience. It's a spiritual experience to watch them hover over and caress the skeletal remains of their kin. Is this memory, curiosity, grief? In addition to the elephants, we also see hippos battling in the rivers, lions attacking wildebeests, crocodiles, bird life. This 53-minute movie premiered on the PBS show Nature back on October 14th. 2015, and it's now available for viewing for free on the PBS website. It would make a fantastic film for family night. Once again, the title of the movie, Soul of the Elephant, from the PBS show Nature. And finally, for poetry for the second Sunday in Advent, We've posted an Advent Credo by Daniel Berrigan. It is not true that creation and the human family are doomed to destruction and loss. This is true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It is not true that we must accept inhumanity and discrimination, hunger and poverty, death and destruction. This is true. I have come that they may have life, and that abundantly. It is not true that violence and hatred should have the last word, and that war and destruction rule forever. This is true. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting, the Prince of Peace. It is not true that we are simply victims of the powers of evil who seek to rule the world. This is true. To me is given authority in heaven and on earth, and lo, I am with you, even until the end of the world. It is not true that we have to wait for those who are especially gifted, who are the prophets of the church, before we can be peacemakers. This is true. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall have dreams. It is not true that our hopes for liberation of humanity, of justice, of human dignity, of peace, are not meant for this earth and for this history. This is true. The hour comes, and it is now, that the true worshipers shall worship God in spirit and in truth. So let us enter Advent in hope, even hope against hope. Let us see visions of love and peace and justice. Let us affirm with humility, with joy, with face, with courage, Jesus Christ, the life 
of the world. Advent Credo by Daniel Berrigan. This is from his book by Daniel Berrigan, Testimony, The Word Made Flesh, 2004. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December 6, 2015, the second Sunday in Advent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.